Hello and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I am Jenny Schulich, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at San Francisco Ballet, and I am still your host for To The Point, the podcast that tells you all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. Today, our topic is Program 30, In Space and Time. This program brings together three very different takes on ballet, from modernist abstraction to narrative drama to classical virtuosity, by three choreographers, Helgi Thomason, Kathy Marston, and Harold Lander. And yet, as different as these three ballets are, they do share some key characteristics. A sophisticated use of lighting, together with minimalist set design, an exploration of ballet technique in three very different directions, music that has been arranged specifically for this ballet's use, and a centralization of the ballerina. For all that each of these ballets pushes ballet technique in a different way, somehow in each, the women seem to be the central figures, the ones around whom the rest of the cast gravitates. Intrigued? All right, let's get to the point then. The first ballet on the program is by San Francisco Ballet's very own Helgi Thomason. Thomason has been artistic director and principal choreographer here at San Francisco Ballet since 1985, or so you don't have to do the math, for 34 years. Prior to joining us here on the West Coast, he was a dancer with New York City Ballet, and before that, he was born in Iceland and trained there and in Denmark. Thomason's work generally falls into the category of what we might call, quote-unquote, neoclassicism, ballet that takes classical shapes and forms, but pushes them just a bit beyond, often with fairly minimal sets and costumes. He's also choreographed many story ballets for the company, including the Don Quixote and Sleeping Beauty that appear this season. But that's a different beast entirely, and his style there is quite different. This ballet, The Fifth Season, was choreographed in 2006 to Carl Jenkins' String Quartet No. 2 and the Largo from Jenkins' Palladio. When he began work on this ballet, Thomason knew he wanted to choreograph the String Quartet, but he also knew he wanted six movements in the ballet, not five, and so he added in the Largo from another piece of Jenkins' music. While this might seem a little bit odd to music lovers, why would you take a piece of music from one and add it to another? It's not that unusual in ballet. In fact, all three ballets on this program either take various pieces by one composer or a variety of pieces by a handful of composers and organize them together for the purpose of the ballet. Choreographically, this ballet is a study in contrasts. Cool, sophisticated movements and simple costumes coexist with passionate interludes, minimalist music with romantic melodies. It opens with a dramatic lighting effect. Spotlights feature two principal dancers who seem to move toward one another as if from separate worlds. The ballet has six principal dancers in total who dance together in different combinations and a court of ballet or a big group of dancers. But even though all of the principals have their spotlight moment, literally and figuratively, one central couple seems to emerge. Watch for them in the potages set to the Palladio Largo. It's really the heart of this ballet. The second ballet, Kathy Marston's Snowblind, really couldn't be more different than the fifth season. Set to a mixture of Amy Beach, Arthur Foote, and Arvo Part, as arranged by composer Philip Feeney, this ballet takes Edith Wharton's short story, Ethan Frome, as its inspiration. Marston often works from literature, and in this case, she wanted a distinctly American story, 
So she turned to Wharton, whose depiction of the desolation of a cold New England winter and of a cold New England marriage seemed fitting for a dramatic ballet. The story itself is fairly straightforward. Ethan, a married man, falls in love with his hypochondriac wife's cousin, who also happens to be his maid. It doesn't really improve from there. When Zena, his wife, finds out about the relationship, she turns Maddie, the maid, out into the snow. Ethan follows her, and they decide together on a suicide pact, but it goes wrong, and instead of dying, both are permanently disabled. Maddie's paralyzed. Faced with this devastation, Zena takes them both in and cares for both for the rest of her life. Happy stuff, huh? One particularly interesting aspect of Marston's work is the way that she generates movement. I'll let her tell you about it. So if you have to put a label on my movement style, it falls into this very cloudy area called contemporary ballet, I suppose, um, in that it's not classical ballet, but I do, if I have the dancers, use the ballet technique. Um, for example, in partnering, I like to be able to work with um, partnering that where strength is involved. There might be lifts, there might be support. But the contemporary bit is I certainly use more contemporary techniques, for example, contact improvisation. So... I love partnering that also uses counterbalance or where momentum and weight can make a lift rather than just pure strength and also where the women can support and even sometimes lift the men. Um, in terms of the movement vocabulary, it's coming very much from the inside out and it's usually start, the starting point is the story or the character or the emotion that I'm trying to convey. And that means that sometimes, in fact, last week, I said to a character, one of the principals in the piece, what classical step would Zena do? And that was a way in for a ballet dancer to find a way to, to get her alphabet, her vocabulary, for a character that wasn't sort of an on shame on and then you add the character on top. It was trying to find, well, what sort of movement does she do? And if we start by saying, well, she does arabesques and maybe it's a straight line as opposed to an attitude or maybe it's not a renversé, but it's a frappe. Or, and then you can tweak those movements. So you say, well, a frappe, but can you really throw it at the end? And in that way, it changes from being ballet to something that, okay, let's call it contemporary ballet. <laughs> Well, a certain movement, um, if you want a movement to look out for in the piece, I went last weekend to the Munch exhibit at the Art Museum here in San Francisco. I'd been to the Munch Museum before in Oslo, and I love his paintings, and it really, in terms of the period and the atmosphere and the sort of the loneliness, I guess, um, that you feel from some of his paintings, I thought it might be a good thing to do on the weekend. And there's one painting called The Kiss... And it, the man has the woman in his arms, and their faces are sort of melt into one another. There's no definition. There's a real loss of identity. Um, and, but this enormous feeling of passion and sensuality. Um, and I came into the rehearsal on Monday and I thought, oh, I've got to get that in somehow. How are we going to... There's a love duet, obviously, between Matty and Ethan. And uh, we came to this movement very naturally where he, he's sort of stroking up her back and she's in a backbend and he bends over... And I said, put your hand between and kiss your hand. So they're kissing each other through his hand, which is a very childish, playful thing to do, but also described to me the, the desire and yet the, the, the barrier, I guess, between them. And, and nevertheless, they do melt into one another, and then they kind of manage to get this lift in. 
in this divided kiss. Um, and I was really excited when we found that. So she gave you a few things to look for there. But I'll also add that in this ballet, you're going to want to look at the corps de ballet or the big group of dancers. They alternately represent the cold and the snow of New England and the central character's emotions, adding even more emotional depth to this already dramatic ballet. And remain attentive to the two principal women. Although on the one hand, this is about the love story between Maddie and Ethan, it's equally, if not more so, about Xena. Watch for how this ballet is really more about her narrative arc than that of the two lovers. The third ballet on this program is also dramatic, but in a very, very different way than Snowblind. Choreographed in 1948 by Danish choreographer Harald Lander, Etudes is an ode to classical ballet's history and form. A series of studies, or etudes to use the French word, set to a series of piano etudes, get it, by Carl Cherney, arranged and orchestrated by Nuda Riesegger, and please do write in with how to pronounce that one if you speak Danish, this ballet puts its dancers through their paces. It begins with exercises at the bar, or the uh, piece of wood that is along the sides of ballet studios that dancers hold on to to warm up. So it begins with exercises at the bar, and then it moves into ballet's romantic era past with a section for several sylphs, or sort of fairies. And then it ends with a spectacular display of virtuosity and technique. At the center of the ballet is a principal woman and two men. The woman appears throughout the ballet, needing to transition from a sparkling technician to a romantic sylph to a virtuosic ballerina, really leading the audience through the ballet's various transitions. San Francisco Ballet hasn't done etudes since 1999, so we brought in an outside coach, what we call in the ballet world a repetiteur or a stager, to teach this ballet to our dancers. Johnny Eliasson is a former principal dancer with and artistic director of the Royal Danish Ballet the company that Lander directed and for which he made this ballet. I had the chance to sit down with Johnny earlier this summer in our studios and ask him for his thoughts on the piece, which he's been staging around the world for many years. So let's kick it over to Johnny. The, I mean, it, it, was, it was choreographed in 1948, and it was, I'm not quite sure if Hal Lander was still married to Marco Lander. Uh, I'm not quite sure about that, but it was Marco Lander who uh, premiered it in 1948 with uh, Hans Breno, who's a very famous Bourneville teacher, and uh, Sven-Erik Jensen. And, but while he, was, <coughs> excuse me, while he was creating Etude, Marco Lander was a big ballerina. Not that he was a diva, but he was a big ballerina, like Carla Fracci and Margot Fontaine in Denmark. So he would use a very, very young girl, which name was Tony Lando, mm -hmm. uh, which later on became his wife. In, I think in 60 they married or something like that. Okay. I'm not, not yeah. quite sure about that. So, so he would actually create the ballet on her, which is interesting now because that's what we do now. We are going back to a production which was made for Danish television in 69, 1969, uh, and that was the last time that Harlander worked on the ballet, and he did work on it with Rizea, who is the composer, or the, the one who put the music together. Uh, so that's what we go, obviously, because it's a television production, there's different angles and stuff like that, but that's the production we go out from now to, because it was the last thing, uh, because it has changed over the years. Right. Different people have staged it, 
and have take, taken liberty to think, oh no, this is better than that. And, uh, but so now we are trying, we are actually two-staging it. It's a Danish, uh, another Danish guy, his name is Thomas Lund, and myself. And Lisa Lander, who owns the ballet, only wants us to do it. Mm. And you both do that in We both do that, and what we, it's very, very similar. There are very few little things that's not the same. But I claim to know it because I work with Harvard. <laughs> The whole idea of Agent is like to show what we do. You know, the, the opening with the white girl doing a grand plié, uh, you know, and then we get into the tendu, chétés, campement, frappés, and whatever, you know, fondue, whatever. And then it sort of built into the next thing, which is after the bar, we would stretch, stretch our leg. After that, we do a port de bras, which then go into a dash in center. And so it's a build of a how we create our day in the morning for the rest of the day and end up with a big crescendo, you know, the big jumps and all of that. Obviously, it's a great privilege to, that, to do it, and I've done it, you know, many, many times. And it's a wonderful experience each time. When watching this ballet, you should keep an eye out for the central ballerina who flits in and out throughout the ballet, sometimes in a short classical tutu and sometimes in a longer romantic era one. A romantic era tutu comes to about mid-calf. Look for the ways that the steps you see later in the ballet, the jumps and the turns, relate to the earlier exercises you saw at the bar. If you can make that connection, make the connection of how these steps are related to one another and how they build off of each other, it really might change how you watch all ballets from here on forward. And that's that. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out our other To The Point and Meet The Artist podcasts, especially our To The Point about Program 2, Kaleidoscope. All of our recent podcast episodes live on our site at sfballet.org, as well as in your favorite podcast player, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, and Stitcher. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the iTunes store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SFBallet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you for listening and see you soon at the opera.